This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Siebel about criticism. Matt, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, my name is Matt Siebel. My official title is Associate Professor of American Literature and Mark Twain Studies. That's at Elmira College, and I'm the resident scholar at the Center for Mark Twain Studies. And I'm the founding editor of MarkTwainStudies.org and the executive producer of the American Vandal podcast, which is the official podcast of the Center for Mark Twain Studies, where most recently I assembled a 16-episode series on the state of contemporary criticism under the title Criticism Limited. Yeah, and High Theory was part of that series and we were super excited to participate in it. And as a result of that series and all the questions it raised and conversations it started, we wanted to ask Matt to come back here uh, to tell us what the heck is criticism? (laughs) So uh, as you know, One of the pivotal moments through which I narrated the series is you asking me exactly that question at a moment when I wasn't really prepared for it. And while I don't disavow the answer that I gave at that point, which was something like a, a performance of interpretation with an expressly instructive or epiphonic objective, One of the things that I came to believe as I was working on the series and talking to dozens of scholars and reading justifications of criticism from like Matthew Arnold all the way to the present, I came to see criticism as foremost a kind of intertextual latticework or adhesive. Like if novels and poems and other primary sources are the like bricks and ballasts of cultural history, the substance of what we can see from any distance, that it's still that cultural history won't really stay upright, won't really stay coherent in any kind of lasting way without criticism. And there were several texts by which I came to that definition or that perspective but I'll just bookmark two of them for your listeners, right? The first was Twain's late life notebooks in which he has these demeaning statements about critics and reflections on his own critical tasks that are interwoven with anxiety about his literary legacy up to and including like explicit notes in between writing about criticism, explicit notes about how he wants to execute his literary estate. 
And the metaphor I quote extensively in the series is the critic's symbol should be the tumblebug. He deposits his egg in somebody else's dung. Otherwise, he could not hatch it. And so it's kind of dehumanizing, of course. But to Twain, especially at that point in his life, there's nothing especially noble about being human. <laughs> and, okay. and also the tumblebug, as Twain knew and even wrote about elsewhere, was a kind of ecological miracle worker. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the labor force who turns waste into fertilizer. And I think that's kind of Twain's attitude towards critics throughout the final decade of his life. They disgust him, mm-hmm. but he also realizes that he needs these people. And maybe even more, we, we need these people. Mm. And then the other text, which is one of the namesakes for the series, was Derrida's Limited Incorporated. Mm-hmm. And what stuck with me most of all about it, although Derrida is on the defensive sort of throughout this series of essays, he's kind of pushing back against the notion that deconstruction is a kind of textual nihilism or moral relativism. But for me, the moment that really kind of went through me was his refusal to accept that apartheid could be contingent, at least not yet, not not at the moment of, of the 1980s. Apartheid. Yeah, he really positions critics and theorists as responsible for not just naming apartheid, but refusing to let that word bleed into a kind of totem or cliche or catch all. And it might be inevitable that some of that dilution is going to happen over time, but he sort of puts it on critics like himself to make that meaning hold fast a little bit longer and build the kind of matrix of reference that will make that meaning accessible historically. Wait, apartheid in South Africa? That apartheid? Okay. How does, why is he talking about apartheid? Can you give us a little more? Okay. So yeah, Yeah. this is part of a series of back and forths, much of which plays out in critical inquiry. Okay. Yeah. I won't be able to summarize the whole series of exchanges, but there are a number of critics in that exchange who are essentially calling him a hypocrite for making these claims about the sort of political reality of apartheid while at the same time he is all about contingency and relativism elsewhere. His defensiveness and his stubbornness on this issue, that was something that left a real mark on me and on the series, I think. Okay. So how do I use criticism? So... You, right, <laughs> as perhaps or I'm thinking, one. right, Ooh. one, yeah, right. Yeah. I, and I'm thinking us primarily as uh, instructors, as professors, as scholars. And I really became devoted to Jed Esty, who I know has also been a guest on High Theory. And it's an argument that he makes to some degree in the future of decline, but he extrapolated it even more in our interview for Criticism Limited. He distinguishes literary studies from other disciplines because it treats myth and history, fiction and nonfiction, representation and figuration, documentary and fabulation as both inextricable from each other 
and kind of equally instructive, equally imperative, right? And so for Jed, or at least my interpretation of Jed, maybe, both the practice of criticism and the archive of critical texts operate as these kind of portals in which we can simultaneously see both the myths that shape our societies, which for Jed are things like white supremacy, national supremacy, declinism, and also the material conditions out of which those myths are fashioned. And so the way that somebody who teaches criticism or practices criticism or explores criticism, the objective is to make those things visible simultaneously. The myths, it's not that they aren't real, right? Because they have real impacts and real effects, right? I think that's the power of Jed's argument in the future of decline is, you know, it doesn't matter how reliable the data is about to what extent Britain is in decline or the U.S. is in decline. The belief makes manifest, mm -hmm. right? And, and we have to be able to recognize that as belief, as myth, and compare it to something else in order to divest it of its potency. Yeah. And literary critics can do that. Literary, literary studies scholars can do that in a way that historians can't, economists can't, political scientists can't. Because they are bound to some vision of, of the truth. Right. Okay. But that's a question about an attitude towards the past. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, especially thinking about that apartheid example, which was very much in Derrida's present. Right. What does that tell us about managing dealing with using criticism in the present. Yeah. Well, I, I think, and this is, again, you know, maybe from the perspective of a historicist like Jed, with whom I share some sort of methodological as well as political sympathies. To some extent, literary critics should always be thinking about themselves within that thick stream of history, right? Kind of imagining forward. And this is another way in which we are both participating in the myth and trying to debunk it simultaneously, right? Is that one of the things you do when you practice criticism is, is think about how you are kind of flagging <laughs> yourself to a set of conditions, right? Even as you are exploring texts which are oftentimes free from those conditions, at least theoretically or ostensibly. And part of the work of doing it is like pulling them back, right? And putting markers on them that flag them to those specific circumstances. And the critic can do that. The critic, I think, should do that in a way that the artist, the writer, the poet doesn't have to. And in fact, might resist, right? But that resistance, that pull between critic and poetry, like that's going to be useful, to future generations of readers and scholars looking back at those dual archives working in tandem with each other. Totally. So what, what's going on is there's this like utopian creative impulse that's rocketing off the work into a stratosphere that is separate. Mm -hmm. And then the job of the critic is to grab a hold of it and to pin it back down to its moment or maybe to try to pull it to our moment. Yeah. And I think that it's those things simultaneously. Right. And that I, I'm certainly somebody who, who 
believes in the kind of presentism when it comes to criticism, right? That we need to give equal credence to both the attempt to historicize, but also our own concerns, right? And our own values and, and our own set of conditions that might make that work have continued relevance. The kind of strategic presentism, as Anna Cornblue puts it. I know that you wanted to ask me a question. Do yeah. you feel like now might be a good moment? Yeah, or? yeah, sure. Well, I, okay. I mean, you play a kind of, and this is true of the entire Criticism Limited series, Like it came together very organically. I did dozens of interviews, but as it turned out, the conversation that you and Sharonak and I had was one of the moments where I got some clarity about what I was working towards that I didn't necessarily have before we talked. And so I was definitely curious your responses to how I framed both criticism and high theory early in the season, and then the role of podcasts as a medium for criticism much later in the series. Yeah. Let me give you a slightly tricksy answer. The Humanities Podcast Network is proposing an edited collection on podcasting in the humanities, and we just recently had to write our response to the peer review of the proposal. And one of the things we said in response is we really think it's important to consider podcasts themselves as scholarship that these essays might cite. And we gave, as an example, your Criticism Limited series as one that is being taken quite seriously as scholarship itself. I'm very pleased to hear that. And of course, one of the things that I was hoping for, I didn't even necessarily allow myself to think about this while I was working on it. But once it was over, one of the things that I was hoping for was that there would be some sort of crossover between conventional reception of academic work and the podcast series, right? That maybe somebody would review it either in a scholarly journal or in a para-academic publication, and there would be that kind of translation. And while I haven't seen anything like that, what I have noticed is it's getting quoted, hmm in ways that none of the previous podcasts had been with any consistency, at least, right? That I've seen maybe a dozen or more quotations taken from various parts of the podcast in some kind of written text already. And, that, you know, this just ended a couple of months ago. And so that suggests to me this understanding that this can be a medium for scholarship. We're moving in that direction slowly. Haltingly, slowly, but definitely I think there's progress being made. Okay. On that point of progress and yeah. sort of movement, let me ask you our big final question. Yeah. How will criticism save the world? <laughs> um, so I'm going to give what I realize I think is a kind of strikingly similar argument or answer to what I gave the first time I was on high theory when the thing we were talking about was economics. But I'm going to recall that at the time, and this is, this is so informed the last few years of, of my thinking, which is uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's novel ministry for the future. Okay. 
And one of the things that plays out in that novel is the interdisciplinary collaboration between social scientists, uh, bureaucrats, uh, politicians, bankers, and then scientists and engineers, right? And that they are brought together by the need to address climate catastrophes. And what made Robinson's sort of representation of those kind of board meetings and brainstorming sessions so interesting to me is that he places critics or critical theorists, I think, more accurately in his case. But I think critics, you know, also belong there at the center. Right. Part of the constituencies are necessary. Right. And I think part of the reason he does that is that, again, to sort of cite Jed's distinction between what people in literary studies do or cultural studies do as compared to people in the hard sciences or the social sciences, is that, you know, scientists and engineers and bureaucrats are generally rather poor at accounting for or even recognizing the organizing and often disorienting power of myth. Mm -hmm. And politicians and entrepreneurs and creators are often equally poor at seeing through the myths to a material reality. And criticism can capture the attention of both. It can be a kind of powerful intermediary, right? And I think if there is a role that critics have in addressing some form of climate crisis or climate catastrophe, it is as a kind of translator that can hopefully... And I know you are are quick to dismiss the idea that critics or literary studies people are extra sympathetic. And that's not what I'm planning, right? We are going to be good at the job of building relationships with people from other disciplines because we are somehow more human or more humane. That's not what I think. What I do think is that given the right set of context, right, we bring a capacity to speak to both of those enclaves and maybe to shrink the distance between them to some degree. Yeah, it sounds quite a bit like the the glue metaphor that you started with. Mm-hmm. We are neither the full-fledged idealists who believe their own lies, nor are we the like hard-headed materialists who can't see any sort of symbol or or the power of myth. And I I think for one of the things that's really important for the critics in our audience right now is like the glue, it's going to be invisible work, right? It's going to be pretty thankless work. It oftentimes by those parties in engineering or entrepreneuring or politics, they aren't even going to realize it's happening, (laughs) right? And so it can't be expected to be some sort of critic hero who comes to any kind of aid of society. That's just not how it's going to work. And so I think if we're going to take on this, the eccentricity of your question, right? How do we save the world, right? Anything we do to save it will be almost instantly forgotten. (laughs) It is somewhat optimistic, right? Like criticism (laughs) will have a role in saving the world. It will just be forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, thank you so much for coming and talking with us. 
Thank you. This is a pleasure as always. Oh, thank you. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonik Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio. And Sharonik Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.